Good morning. Oh, this is just one of those days when nothing seems to be working right. My pages would stick to the binding on the on my notebook here and they wouldn't fold. They wouldn't turn. Spilled coffee all over the floor this morning. No, not here, at home. All right, so let's uh, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 23. Well, that's where we'll start, right? I mean, you guys know by now that there's no such thing as just looking at a handful of verses with me. So we'll start with verses 21 through 23 as we look at the Lord, our Redeemer, who this person is that is our Redeemer. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. O Lord, who are we to stand in this room this morning and consider being a part of your redeemed? Who are we to approach the throne room of grace and to ask for your kindness and mercy to be poured out on us? Who are we to be the redeemed? Nothing except your gracious goodness saying your redeemed people. And I pray, O Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, these words would sink deep into our hearts, into our minds, and into our souls so that we would know and live in the truth and the reality of that we are your redeemed people and that you have redeemed us. And I pray, O oh Lord, this morning that, that your spirit would pour through me and that the words from my mouth would be those words that you would have all of us to hear, to understand who you are and to know you in all the fullness of who you are. And we ask it, Lord, because you have promised that you will listen to those who are your people. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this week, I'm continuing with this theme that I started last week, the theme of redemption, which is my life theme. Part of you getting to know who it is that you're really getting is your pastor, if you so choose. You know, last week I told you about how our Savior had redeemed me personally. And today I want to show you who our Redeemer is and why he can redeem anyone. Because one of the lies that we start to believe is that we are unredeemable, that we just can't be saved. And this passage is just all about how powerful and how full of complete might our Redeemer is. 
starting from the beginning of chapter 43 all the way through chapter 46 of Isaiah, the Lord just hammers and pounds away over and over and over. I, I am the Lord. There is no other. I am God. Besides me, there is no other. He just hammers at it a time and again and again and again, which then raises the question, why? Why does he feel the need to keep saying that over and over and over? Because he wants them to understand there is no other God. The people that Isaiah is writing to are experiencing this moment in time when they have not yet been exiled out of the land where God's judgment against them has not come to be. And there's this sense of, well, we've watched all the other gods, the gods of the Babylonians, or we've watched the gods of the Assyrians. Now we're watching the gods of the Babylonians and the Egyptians exert their influence over life. And so I don't know what's happening with this Yahweh character, but it seems like he's not really as powerful as we thought he was. That's the moment in time the Israelites are living in towards this end of Isaiah's life long before the exile itself takes place. Understand, look, when Isaiah writes these words, telling them what's going to happen, he's telling them, you're going to be exiled. You're going to spend a long time in a foreign land. And then I will bring you back and I will redeem you. And those events are a hundred years away. He says these words and it's a hundred and well, 170 years before they're fulfilled. The people hearing these words are never going to experience the things Isaiah is talking about. Which then raises the question, why is he telling them? He's telling them because this is what's going to happen. This is who I really am, even though you don't believe this is who I am. That's what he's saying to those people at the moment Isaiah is speaking to them. And then, of course, they're written for the future generations, the ones who in a hundred years will be exiled away from the land and taken in captivity. And then for those who live there for 70 years and are given the chance to come back to Israel. And then for that generation after that, that grows up having been restored into the land. All of this is written for them and us. Because God understood when he spoke these words through Isaiah that there would be these stinking Gentiles in Castle Rock, Colorado, 4,000, almost 4,800 years after Isaiah writes them, 2,800 years after he writes them, who still don't know who God is, who, who still doesn't understand that he is God and there is no other. And these are here for us today just as much as they were for the men and women who would never taste and experience the exile, for those who were going to go through it and for those who are going to be brought back and redeemed. And these particular three verses that I've read stand as like a bridge between the first 20 verses of chapter 44 and the next 24 through 28, the end of chapter 44 in the book of Isaiah. Because... The beginning of verse 21 says, remember these things, O Jacob. And you could even write it this way, that therefore, O Jacob and Israel, meaning because of what I have said, 
Know this. I formed you. You were my servant. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, because of what I've already said. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. So what happened before verse 21? The most stunning, amazing things. We have everything that happens in verses 6 through 20. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. I have told you from old and declared it. And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. There is no one besides me. He is their redeemer. He is the only God who exists. He is the only one. Everything else is a fake God. Any other God is a joke. A joke. And he goes through verses 9 through 20, illustrating how much of a joke every other God is. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or cast an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith, he takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals, and he fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. And he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes the fuel for a man. He takes it, a part of it, and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over the other half he eats meat. He roasts it, and he is satisfied, and he warms himself, and he says, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of the wood, he makes it into a god, his idol. And then he falls down and worships it, uh, falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also break bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself 
or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the folly of idolatry. The guy takes a piece of wood, a tree, cuts it in half, uses half of it to make firewood so he can cook on it and bake bread on it and heat up the fire to do things with it. And the other half of the tree, he takes it and makes it into an idol and says, this is my God. It's like, what? Have you lost your brain? Do you really believe that? Are you really that dense? Are you really that naive that you think this thing you just made yourself, you took half of it and cooked and made it into firewood and the other half you made it into your God? Do you really believe that? That's the folly. That's why these gods are just jokes. They can't even make themselves. Man has to make them. They're so unpowerful, so inept, they can't make themselves. But you're going to worship that. You're going to put your hope in that. It sounds ridiculous. Like I mean, Philip's over here laughing. He gets it. We have done it too. I'm going to take this company that I've started and I'm going to build it into something really special. And it will take care of me. Or I'm going to take this person and I'm going to give my whole life to them. They're going to be more important than anything else in my life. And they will take care of me. They will give me satisfaction. They will give me fulfillment. They will give me all the longings of my heart. We're no less foolish than the men in Isaiah chapter 44. We're just more sophisticated at it. We realize the folly of taking a piece of wood and turning it into an idol or taking some iron ore from the ground and turning it into a metal image that we worship. We're too smart for that. So we become more sophisticated in our idolatry. Man, I'm, I was stupid enough to believe that and do these things. Why? Because I didn't believe in the promises. I believed the lies that I was being told. I was telling myself and that the enemy of our souls reinforces. We have to believe in the promise he gives us. The promises that come in verses 24 through 28. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Remember, This is the God of heaven and earth speaking to you right now. Yes, Isaiah wrote these words towards a people that don't even exist anymore, but he wrote them for you today just as much as he wrote them for the people of that day. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, 
she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. And I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. God named the man who was going to send the Israelites back out of slavery in Babylon, back to Israel. And he even said that the man was going to appoint that the city be rebuilt and the temple be rebuilt out of the kingdom's treasury. All 170 years before it happened. And at least 150 years before Cyrus was even born. His mama may not have even been born yet. And God declared who it is that will do this thing and what his name is. This is crazy. This kind of specificity and accuracy is impossible. In fact, that's exactly what many who denied the believability and, and, and reliability of Scripture have said. And in the 19th century, this was a piece of information people pointed to to say that the book of Isaiah wasn't really written by the prophet Isaiah, but it was written by somebody else, you know, a hundred years after the exiles returned to Jerusalem and added to the book of Isaiah. And many believed it until this little Palestinian shepherd boy threw a rock into a cave and heard a clay jar crack walked in there and discovered what we now know today as the Qumran Caves and all the, the entire Old Testament stored in clay pots. And there, many, many centuries earlier than anybody believed we had old manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts to work from. The discovery at Qumran just completely wiped away this fallacy that the book of Isaiah was written by two people, that there was no way that this had to have been written by someone else many years after the exiles returned. The Isaiah scroll in the Qumran cave just wiped that mistake off the map. And even those who still have struggled believing that it could be this, that there's any way the prophet Isaiah could have done this, have to admit that the evidence contradicts their own belief. Which then raises the question, how? How is it possible that some Hebrew guy could write this kind of accuracy of future events? Because God is God. He is God, there is no other. And if you reject, if you don't believe that, if you don't accept that as the truth, you're just not going to be able to handle Isaiah writing verse 28, 170 years before it comes true. Because that's the only way a human can become this accurate at predicting future events. Is that the great God, the one and only God, God of heaven and earth, who is in control of all things, can tell you this is what's going to happen 170 years, write it down. And then he has enough power 
and control over world events and world history to actually cause it to come about exactly the way he said it was going to 170 years earlier. This is the God who says, I will redeem you. If he can, if he can do that, what can he not do? Is there anything he can't do? If he can do that, is there anything he can't do? No. He is God. He is the first. He is the last. And besides him, there is no God. Of course, we now have to step into an even a little more uncomfortable question than who is this God? Is what does it mean to be redeemed? He says he'll redeem us, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be redeemed? Well, the, the first problem with redemption is the recognition that we are in a state of being unredeemed, that we need a redeemer, that we are a mess and not a hot mess either. We need help. I needed help. And I had to come to this realization and, and understanding and acceptance of the fact that I was a mess and I needed to be redeemed. And so do you. Every single one of us. There's not a person on the planet that can escape this reality. I need to be redeemed. And our redemption begins with just that. Acknowledging we need to be redeemed. Then comes the more uncomfortable question of, well, it's one thing that I need help. But I have to also acknowledge that I can't help myself. I can't redeem myself. We cannot redeem ourselves. All of y'all put together can't redeem me. And I sure can't redeem myself. This is no kind of self-help. I can fix this mindset. No, we, we have to admit that we are powerless over our addictions, over our brokenness and our sinful patterns. Because look, you've all got them. I know you got them because I got them. Sinful patterns. I can do the same thing over and over and over. That in our own power, our lives are just unmanageable. I just keep screwing this up. We are in chains that we cannot break on our own. We can't break the bindings of those chains around our ankles and our wrists. We need someone to unlock them and set them loose. And then we turn to the one who is the power over even our brokenness and the sinful patterns. The one described in verses 6 through 8 of Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And that word rock is not just a randomly chosen term. That word rock is a, a clear and undeniable reference to the rock of Meribah and Massah when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, thirsty, dying of thirst, desperate for something to drink, probably two and a half to three million people. 
Imagine trying to find water for two and a half to three million people plus animals in the desert. That's a problem. That's a big problem if you're Moses. And he goes to God and God says, see that rock over there? I'm going to make water come from that rock because I am God. And the water comes out of the rock. That's the rock being described here in Isaiah 44. There is no rock. I know not any. There ain't nobody but me that can make water come from a rock in the middle of the desert. I am this God. This is who I am. Believe in me. Then he blots out our transgressions like a cloud and our sins like a mist. They're just wiped away by the one true God. Is he powerful enough to wipe away all my mistakes? Yes, he is. Is he powerful enough to make me brand new, make me into a new person and redeem me completely, not just get me out of trouble, but change me into a, to a person that's like him? Yes, he is. Psalm 103. Okay, so this is where I just go off on a bunch of verses. Psalm 103, 11 through 13. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And then there's Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. What? You will not remember my sins? I remember every stinking person who's wronged me. But you're not going to remember my mistakes? This is our God. And then Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verse 18 One of the most famous verses in all the book of Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And it would be enough if he just did this. If he just wiped away the transgressions and made us clean, that would be enough. Then he does more. Ezekiel 36 Verses 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You're going to do what? You're going to put your Holy Spirit in me? Okay, that's a little scary. Kind of exciting, but a little scary. What God does this? Look, listen, I cannot pretend to you that I'm an expert in ancient Mesopotamian gods, but I know a thing or two about them. And I have great confidence when I say to you, there is absolutely nothing written in any of the ancient Mesopotamian literatures about the ancient Mesopotamian gods where they said, I'm going to put my spirit within you. As far as I know, none Zero ever said such a thing. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is the only one that ever said that. 
And then Jesus, in his own promises to us, in John chapter 8, 34 and 36, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is willing to set us free. He's willing to set us free from all the stuff that we carry in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds that bind us and trap us. And when he sets us free, the promise is that we will be free indeed. And then Titus chapter 3, for we ourselves were once foolish. This is what happens when we've been set free and we've been redeemed. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. You could even substitute the word redeemed. He redeemed us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that purpose clause, this is the purpose, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He regenerates us with the washing away of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit poured out richly to us through Christ Jesus so we may become heirs of the hope of eternal life. Then when he's done all that, we live free. We live as free men and free women. First Peter chapter two, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is what he does for us. This is where he takes us. This is where he takes us to. And he can do it because he is God. There is no other. I know not one. I am he. I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no other. I mean, those 43 to 46, he says it like seven or eight times. So what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do? What are we going to do? What are you going to do? What is our response to such lavish, scandalous grace? Our response is just what verse 23 of chapter 44 in the book of Isaiah shows. Joyous praise and glorification of our Redeemer. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Do you see this? Did you see that? It ain't just the redeemed of the Lord who are saying praise and glory to his name. All of creation is singing to him. The mountains and the trees are worshiping God. What? How does that work? What does that look like? I don't know. I've never seen it, but somehow it happens. 
Somehow we will see a day when, when all of creation, even the things that appear inanimate, that are inanimate in our world today, are singing His praises. Then we have Psalm 107. I'm going to finish this. There may not be anything left to my voice, but I'm going to finish this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands and from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Okay, side note. Sorry, I'm stepping out for just a second. That passage... Uh, Jews today being repatriated in the land of Israel, they look at this and go, oh my gosh, it's literally happening. It's literally true that he is taking his people from the north and from the east and from the west and from the south and returning them to his land. Sorry, just had to let that one out. So verse four, some wandered in deserts, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he satisfied the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And I'm just going to read through verse 22 because these next 12 verses, 10 through 22, is us. Everybody in this room fits in these verses. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress, and he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent his, out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let those folks thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Oh, my brothers and sisters, if you know what it means to really be redeemed, you cannot help but sing in joy to our Redeemer. Oh, I'm almost to the end. One more. Revelation chapter 5. This is what we have to look forward to. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is a lot of big promises. If you're going to make promises this big, you better be a big God. You better be the one who is and there is no other if you're going to make these kind of promises. This is who our Redeemer is. The one who makes these promises, who is no other and does this. This is the hope that I proclaim to you and the hope to which I am calling you to. Hear your Redeemer, Christ Jesus, calling to you and come and be set free. Come live in the joy and peace that only I can give you, he says. Come live and be who I created you to be in all the fullness of joy and being one with me, he says. So now I call you to respond to this hope. If you don't know Christ as your Savior and your Redeemer, then call on him to redeem you from the spiritual death and the emptiness of your soul. Call on him for the forgiveness of your sins and to be washed in the blood of the lamb so that the scarlet red of your sins becomes the white robe of righteousness. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have trusted in Christ and are among the redeemed of the Lord, yet you still feel trapped in the shame and chains of your past, I challenge you, I challenge you to look deep into the hurts and wrongs of your past, the ones where you have believed lies about God and yourself, lies that the enemy of our soul has used to keep us in chains, in prison of shame and regret. Lies like, if they really know you, they will reject you. You are unworthy of God's love. No one can love you. Not even God could love you. You are unlovable. Your screw-ups are too bad even for Jesus to fix. It's too dangerous to come out of hiding and let others know who you really are. You will be alone forever. You will lose everything if you trust Jesus and try to follow him. Lies, 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 lies. Every one of them lies from the pit of hell. Lies from the one who doesn't care about you. He just wants to put you in his prison for his own joy and satisfaction. I call on you today, my brothers and sisters, I call on you to renounce, refuse, and reject all these lies. Every one of them. Believe, embrace, and live in the truth. That Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He is your Redeemer. He chose you as His beloved and has chosen to redeem you out of His great lavish love for you. Believe it, embrace it, feel it, and be joyful in it. Be joyful in it. Let's pray. Oh God. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you love us this much. 
And Father, we plead with you to pour out your spirit this moment, in this hour, to draw all of us to you, to to bust every single chain and lie that we believe about ourselves or about you, and to live in the freedom of who you really are and who you have created us to be. I pray, Lord, that today would be the day of freedom. And I call in the name of Jesus for freedom and the breaking of bonds and chains in every person here. And we ask it in the sweet, holy, precious, and only name of Jesus. Amen.